0: This is Metro Focus, with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Ganz Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos, Estate of Worthington Mayo Smith,
1: Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus, I'm Jack Ford. In 2019, the New York City Council passed a groundbreaking climate law designed to drastically reduce carbon emissions by setting strict limits on the city's biggest polluters, buildings. The law, part of Mayor Bill de Blasio's New York City Green New Deal, was hailed at the time as a national model for how cities can take bold action on climate change. But a recent report by The New York Times revealed that with the clock ticking, many property owners are running out of time to comply with the law and are facing millions of dollars in penalties if they fail. The problem? Infrastructure updates are costly, especially for the city's oldest apartment buildings, some of which are more than a century old. Some property owners feel like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But changing or adapting the law would weaken the city's efforts to go green. Joining me now to talk about this pressing issue as part of our ongoing Peril and Promise initiative on climate change and its solutions is New York Times real estate reporter Stephanos Chen. Stephanos, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. For having me. So it it was a fascinating article that you wrote. And, And I will admit, not living in New York City, I wasn't familiar with all of the details of this. So let's start off with a backdrop to help our, our viewers understand all this and ask you to tell tell us how was it that this law came about back in 2019?
0: Well, in 2019, when they, when they passed this, this really landmark uh, raft of bills uh, that was uh, attempting to uh, curb the city's carbon emissions to to do something about climate change. Uh, I think what a lot of folks don't realize is, is that our biggest polluter in New York City is not truck stalling outside, though they are a big component of it, it's It's buildings. And, and New York, uh, having one of the oldest, dirtiest uh, housing stocks in the in the country, uh, has has quite a lot of it to to retrofit and, and upgrade. That was one of the more fascinating aspects to me that it was not, you
1: would think, all the trucks and the and the traffic coming in and out that it was buildings. So that's the backdrop. Give us a sense of what this law, or these, as you said, a series of
0: laws, what did they provide? it's a framework for essentially hitting uh um, stopping uh climate change to to a degree that we believe or the scientific community believes will be sufficient to prevent the worst catastrophic uh climate change events in the future and and there are uh very rigid dates in which we really want to get this done uh the the laws outline by 2030, uh, uh, there is a significant uh, uh, carbon emission reduction we need in 2040 and 2050 and so on. And if we don't hit these mile markers, uh, we really are in trouble uh, of, 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 you know, it's too late, essentially, to, to make these changes. I mentioned in the
1: introduction that there can be some hefty penalties attached to this. Give a sense of what kind of penalties we might be
0: talking about here. So the buildings, essentially, uh, I think the criticism from some folks is that this is a law with a lot of sticks and no carrots is is the, the common way that this is described. Um, but but also very important in that the, the penalties here are, are to disincentivize these building owners, whether it's a co-op or condo or rental building or, or office buildings, all sorts of things, uh, from uh, not complying. And to do that, they have created a measure uh, that's very complicated... Uh, formula by which they measure at the end of the year how much carbon they, this building has put out, and if you are in excess of that goal, you will be fined uh, X dollars per per ton of this this carbon emission. So, uh, some buildings in, in most buildings, to be fair, by 2024, which is the first major hurdle, uh, will pass this, uh, and those that don't won't have huge fees. But by 2030, which is really the first giant hurdle that the buildings have to to cross. Uh, some buildings are looking at $100,000 a year that they'll have to pay. And when you can think of some of the co-ops and condos out there, if you've ever been in one of these condo or co-op board meetings, a lot of these buildings don't have the deep reserves to uh, to pay for that year on year.
1: You point to a number of particular situations in your reporting here. And one I was struck by was you had a conversation with a man who actually works in the realm of of climate change, and he is in one of these positions as as somebody involved in a board where they have to make some hard decisions. Give us a, a sense of of his situation
0: and and why it was so ironic. I thought it was interesting that that we interview a person who's who's very much behind uh, preventing uh, the worst of climate change. He he lives and breathes it. I mean, he has a Ph.D. In in uh, specifically these these issues of climate uh, change mitigation and and thinking about effective ways to do this with buildings, but when he gets back home after his day job, he's on the uh, the board of his condo, and he's got this more than hundred year old brick building in New York, uh, upper Manhattan, uh, that uh, you know just recently had to fight all sorts of issues just just to get off of oil in the building. I mean, some of the dirtiest oil that, that uh, some of these buildings still have. So now you have a building that is is struggling just to, to get up to date because of the cost involved with it in construction is very expensive in the city and now they have these um this decision to make with a hard deadline that says you've got to cut down your emissions by this much by 2030 and uh there's really no clear way for them to do it do they add solar panels to the roof Do they um, put in what are called uh, this this split heating systems uh, uh, that are electric instead of the the gas boiler or the oil boiler in the basement? All of these come with trade-offs and, and uh, different costs. It's it's hard to run up these systems through old buildings, through the guts of the building. They uh, He was telling me he's got to spend over 600 grand just to fix the roof as is today and be, in, be compliant with the city's rules. So all of these other projects are on top of those costs. So as, as much as he wants to hit these goals, he's worried that he's he's got to convince everyone else on this board to go along with it. And if he doesn't, you know, uh, indecisiveness means that nothing gets done in that building, and then they're facing fees.
1: I thought another one of the telling illustrations you used here was a, a, a housing complex in, in Queens, um, a series of homes, small homes, it looks like. And, and tell us a little bit about that situation and the, their particular problems.
0: So the thing about New York housing stock is it's not only is it old, but it's also very quirky and really runs the gamut in terms of what you're looking at. So uh, in in name, it's a it's a co-op community. But when you think of a co-op, you typically think of one vertical building, you know, twenty-story brick uh, in Midtown, maybe. This is really near the border of Long Island in Northeast Queens, where it's on over a hundred acres. These, uh, if you were just looking at it on the street, they look like uh, several dozen uh, single-family, two-family homes, but they are considered a single co-op entity under this law. And so th- this hundred acre property which is sprawling with little grass manicured lawns and tidy brick houses, they also have to comply with these rules. and the estimate that their co-op uh, board owner has come up with is that just to to go all electric as you know has been suggested to them to get to get off of their gas and oil boiler systems would, would cost them somewhere in the range of of, you know, uh 30 million dollars and uh when he when he crunches the numbers on that it seems like uh he'd have to raise the the maintenance on his members many of them elderly folks uh to an extent that he thinks would would price some of them out and force them to leave um so he's juggling those concerns there um and, and there's also i think a reluctance and, and a cynicism with some of these co-op boards because they feel as though they've already complied with with recent changes to the law many have gone from oil changed to natural gas they thought natural gas was clean and so there's some pessimism there thinking well if i make these changes will they come back to me in a few years and say i haven't done enough yeah i was going to ask you about that because you do talk about
1: that in the article about the, the notion of of increasing standards as we go along here 5 years 10 years 15 years and that the the
0: problems that that provides for for landlords and owners these are going to be staggered goals and, and they only get harder from here. So uh, that's why all of these buildings really have to start being forward looking. And, and many of them, you know, in conversations haven't given this much serious thought yet, which is troubling because these are projects that are going to take years to get going. If you, you know, think about uh, the the votes that have to take place on these boards to make sure that that everyone's on board, that everyone's willing to increase the, the the common charges or the maintenance fees to pay for this stuff. Um and so 2030 really isn't far away. And twenty twenty four, which is the first year in which buildings can start to be penalized based on what they do in 2024, is is right around the corner. Uh so it you know it it's only going to get harder. So the decisions they make today have to future proof them for years to come. Is there any prospect of any financial help from either state
1: government or the federal government?
0: Yeah, there there are several programs that both city and state are, are offering. There's there's loans, there are some grants. Uh there is financial help for these buildings. But I, I think right now it's an issue of communicating these these programs to the boards, um, helping them understand what what is available. Um and and there is still some confusion, I think, because the Department of Buildings still has to rule on a few very important uh Contours of of this law. The the main one is called Local Law 97, which is what the one you'll hear about most in these board meetings. Uh, in which there are, there will be a group of buildings that may get a carve out uh, under something called good good faith uh, sort of um, uh, uh, exemptions. Uh, buildings that have tried their best but can prove that they they can't do any more. You know um under under certain conditions and whether they may not have to pay as much penalties or any penalties for instance and and that guidance hasn't come out yet um there's also uh, a lot of uh concern about whether there may be loopholes in this law uh, lots of, of uh environmental advocacy groups are concerned that they fought this hard long fight to get this uh law on the books and now that there are large industry uh special interest groups who will carve out uh, enough holes here that really it, it makes the law ineffective.
1: Are there any talks taking place now or any movements taking place uh, that might result in either pushing some of these deadlines back or
0: creating some sort of amendments to the laws? There's a council member in Northeast Queens, Vicki Paladino, who has uh, uh, sponsored a bill to essentially pause this law, Local Law 97, for seven years. And the thinking there is that that will give homeowners more time to get, uh, get their ducks in a row, get ready for this. Uh, but the concern with that is is that it's just kicking the can down the road. And we already know through substantial scientific research that this this is coming, you know, one way or the other. And you know, we 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 can't uh, postpone uh, what is seemingly inevitable here if if we don't cut on down on these emissions uh, we're, you know, we're in a heap of trouble and, and New York is, is one of the biggest cities and and is being looked at as an example here. So if New York kicks the can down the road, that, you know, what does that mean for the half dozen other municipalities who've adopted similar laws? Yeah. Last question
1: for you. you. Got about 30 seconds here, but do you anticipate that there will be some changes or at least a pause imposed on
0: these laws? It's hard to say. Uh, this, as you mentioned earlier, this this was De Blasio's uh, big push, and and uh, we were under a different administration. Um, but as of today, Department of Buildings is agencies that were involved and remain involved are 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 saying that that they are committed to doing this mm-hmm. and uh, enforcing this. However, we also know that uh, Mayor Adams has has made some pretty sharp cuts in the budgets of these same agencies that are going to be required to enforce right. these laws. Right. So. We- you know, it, it's uh, it's an open question. I have to say.
1: Well, Stephanos Chen from the New York Times. Again, it was it was a marvelous article, well reported, and 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 certainly very revealing. And we appreciate you spending some time with us here today. And and we'll check back in with you as this moves along, just to see what sort of progress is taking place. Stephanos, thanks so much. You take care now. Thank you thank you. In a city where one third of all garbage is compostable, most trash ends up in landfills where it releases methane and contributes to global warming. Our next guest has made it his personal mission to do something about that. Domingo Morales grew up in New York City public housing. As a young man, he discovered a passion for urban farming, environmental justice, and composting. On his own initiative, Morales started Compost Power, an organization that maintains a growing number of public housing composting sites across the city. Here's Domingo explaining what he's trying to do.
2: I wanna build a compost site and help that community stand on their feet so they can take over it and I can walk away and build more compost sites. That's what Compost Power is about, it's about just giving the power to the people. Not only am I, you know, reducing the waste that goes to landfill and generates methane emissions, but I'm creating a resource. I want to hit the areas that sanitation, DSMY sort of missed. Those spots in New York City that really, really wanted to compost, but they didn't have a food scrap drop-off nearby.
1: And joining us now as part of our ongoing Pearl and Promise initiative, reporting on the human stories of climate change and its solutions, is Domingo Morales, the founder of Compost Power. Domingo, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the obvious first question. Explain to us, if you will, what is composting?
2: So composting is basically the human managed process of recycling organic matter and turning it into something that we can use as fertilizer to grow more food, to cultivate tree pits, to grow plants, shrubs throughout New York City.
1: So give us a sense, if you were going to engage in some composting today, exactly what would you be working with and what would you be doing with it?
2: Yeah, so if we're composting today, what we'll be working with is residential food scraps, so things in people's homes that they can't eat, such as apple cores, banana peels, um, anything that you, you can't really eat, we can't use, Um, Green waste that comes off farms and composting is when we take that nitrogen rich material and we blend it with leaves, wood chips, wood shavings and that carbon and that nitrogen put together actually starts a chemical reaction, a biological reaction where microorganisms, I like to call them the FBI, fungus, bacteria and insects work (laughs) together to recycle that material and turn it back into something that new plants can use as nutrients and organic matter.
1: I'll ask a little bit more in a minute about where this is all being done, but let's talk about your involvement in this. And, and I mentioned that as a, a young man, you're still a young man, certainly, but mm-hmm. um, it, you became passionate about these issues and working on this. I also read that when you were indeed a young man, you did not like germs, you didn't like dirt, which, which makes it an interesting question then, how did you become the champion of composting in New York City?
2: Yeah, I mean, I hated the thought of germs. Uh, I really didn't like the public transportation because of how dirty it can be in New York City. Um, My family members would like drink from my cup and I wouldn't be able to drink that anymore. So I always had a fear of germs Um, and I hated farming. I just hated being around bugs. And when I started an AmeriCorps program called Green City Forest back in 2015, they sort of just threw me under the table. They're just like, here you go. You're gonna farm in a public housing community. You're gonna work with food scraps. Um, I was working with rotting food. And it really, it was hard for me to get used to working in these conditions. But working with uh, my mentor at the time, David Buckle, he actually showed me the importance of the good germs. You know, the the fungus and the, and the bacteria that are essential for creating life um, and you know, suppressing those diseases that I was afraid of. So really it was the education and, you know, the hands-on training that got me away from that. Oh, I'm afraid of germs. And now I love germs. So I kind of, it took a life of its own. And now I'm teaching people the importance of composting and working with these germs.
1: You know, we, we often hear the notion of, of the, how how engaged a convert can be in various areas. And clearly, I think you fit that definition, somebody who said, no, 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 to, wow, I wanna do this. I don't wanna help other people with do this. You mentioned teaching. How important is the education component of what you're doing here and what Compost Power is doing?
2: Oh, it's it's important. Whenever I talk about composting in New York City, there's a lot of systems that are in place that are centralized. And we have like the Brown bin program with the Department of Sanitation, Where they put a bin in front of people's buildings and once a week you put your scraps in the bin and it goes away the difference from that and what we do is we're giving people that hands-on training right like you're giving me your food scraps and it takes a lot of work this you know it takes people shoveling pitchforking chopping food scraps blending it it takes months for this stuff to actually turn into a final product that we can use to rebuild our land But through that process, we're able to change people's behavior because they see how much work goes into it. They see how many staff members we need to process organic matter, and they see it as a waste. So we can't really change the behavior of the average resident without giving them the infrastructure to compost and the education necessary to do it. Once you have the infrastructure and the education, that hands-on training, then and only then can an average resident start to change their behavior in their individual households.
1: And education is, can, can have a number of components to it. What do you say to somebody who's who seems to be interested in this? And you explain the process the way you explained it to us. And they say to you, OK, I understand this, but what's the big picture? What's the, what's the benefit here for us doing that? Other than, sure, getting rid of this, moving it from one place to another. What what?" How can it be helpful
2: to us? Um, So one thing is, if everybody was composting their organic waste in a local facility, in their household, however they want to compost, then we can reduce the amount of trucks that are trucking waste through our city. We can reduce the amount of organic waste that goes to landfill. And when organic waste goes to landfill, it generates methane. When it's not composted, it generates methane, which can be 80 times more potent than regular CO2. And um, if everybody composts, it we can actually slow the rate of climate change by 30%. Um, and that's something that people really don't realize is it, it regenerates our soil, allowing us to grow food in soil that might be contaminated with lead, arsenic. We can build raised beds, grow new food in local communities. Um, so we're rehabilitating our soil. We're diverting waste and um, reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that we're producing with our waste. And then on top of that, we're feeding people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All good benefits here. Yes. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about what you've done in terms of setting up and how you've set up the various composting sites
2: around the city. Um, So the, the great thing about the sites that I have is I'm partnered with Green City Forest which is the AmeriCorps program that threw me into farming in the first place. And what they're doing is they're growing food in public housing communities, on public housing land, and they're giving that food away to residents for free. So what I was able to do was, I was able to utilize that farm, build a compost component where we're taking all the organic waste coming from the farm, but we're also taking food scraps from those residents that come once a week to pick up fresh veggies that they can eat. So we kind of create a barter system Come and get your food uh, your food from the farmer's market and bring us your food scraps. And, you know, we'll build a three-bin system, which is basically a wooden structure with three different bins that have different uh, stages of compost. So you have the first stage where it's just food scraps mixed with carbon-rich material. Second stage where it becomes thermophilic, it gets all the way up to 55 degrees Celsius and you'll see steam coming from it. And then you have the third stage, which is that mature compost where you'll see those earthworms you just see biodiversity in that build, and that's the material that we use to actually apply compost to the campuses in which we operate. So we have five compost sites on public housing land, and then we have one site on private land with a partnership with uh, Two Trees Management in Williamsburg, and that's our private site where we use to bring large groups of young adults to give them the training that they need to manage the smaller scale sites throughout the city.
1: Do you envision this as as much more of a grassroots movement or do you see this eventually being something that government takes over or some combination uh, of the two? How do you see it?
2: Well, right now it's a uh, grassroots movement. Every time New York City faces financial hardship, their sustainability goals take a hit and politicians sort of put it on the back burner until they can find the money to do those programs. What we've been able to do is we've been able to utilize grants, utilize fundraising, utilizing the the pool from the residents, from the neighborhoods, and we've been able to keep it consistent. So since Compost Power started working with Green City Force in late 2020, we've been able to keep these food scrap drop-offs consistent. We haven't shut down any of our programs. So the idea is we keep it grassroots. But in order for this to work, we have to work with those large scale composters, with the New York City Compost Project, with the Department of Sanitation. It's going to take that centralized system that sanitation has, the decentralized system that Compost Power has, other non-for-profits throughout New York City working together to get to that zero waste goal. So it's going to stay grassroots, but we'll definitely take some city funding Um, if that's something they want to give us.
1: All right, quick last question before I got about a minute. Somebody's watching this and saying, this sounds really interesting, sounds really important. I I wonder how I can get involved. What's the answer?
2: So there's many programs that you can get involved with. If you go online and look up New York City Composting, you'll find a lot of outlets. Food scrap drop-offs is a key word. If you want a place where you can actually just bring your food scraps and you know know they're going to take it, to a compost facility and it's gonna be recycled. You can visit the compost power compost sites that's on our website. So compostpowernyc.org has a list of the sites that we do have and you can visit them. Um, And just reach out to these different partners throughout the city, send a message through Instagram, send a message through email, let us know you wanna get involved. Um, Another way is just separating your waste at home. That's the first step is creating that behavior.
1: That first step. Well, Domingo Morales, again, the founder of Compost Power, um, good work, well done. And thank you so much for joining us. You take care and and good
2: luck moving forward. All right, you as well. Thank you. Be well.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Metro Focus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metrofocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.